This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. And good afternoon. Welcome to Sandy and Sean here on Mile High Sports, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3. Our caller text line, as always, 303-831-1340. You can communicate with us in either fashion, either on the phones or on our text line. We're streaming on milehighsports.com slash listen. And if you choose to watch, it is... Very simple, milehighsports.com slash watch. And, of course, we're available on the free Mile High Sports app. Our producer is the great Danny Bailey. Sean Rotar is off today. I'm Sandy Clough, and I'm joined by Rick Perea, who will be co-hosting with me over the next three days. And uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, I thought we might be opening today talking about something that has never happened in the history of the Colorado Rockies, and that's the losing of 100 games. They avoid in the first of a day-night doubleheader that 100th loss. Solid game. They win 4-1 over the Dodgers, who, of course, long since clinched a playoff spot in first place once again in the National League West. But the Rockies, for the moment, move to 57-99. and That's the good news. The bad news is they have to win again tonight to avoid 100 losses, and that game will be much more difficult with the 10-game winner pitching for the Dodgers, at least to start. And uh, uh, the Rockies going with Ryan Feltner, who has uh, had uh, far more downs than ups in 2023. But at least at this hour, we cannot report that the Rockies, for the first time ever in their history, going back to 1993, as a first-year expansion team, uh, we cannot report that they have lost 100 games. Instead, they still stand at 99. You worked for the Rockies. Yes. In the year leading up to a two-year stretch, yep. the only two-year stretch in the history of the franchise in which they've made the playoffs in both seasons. Uh, yes, as a wild card, they've never once finished first in their division, though they've made Uh, the playoffs uh, following uh, the 1995 season, which was kind of sort of their third year, although the second year was ended by a strike, and the third year was played out to a schedule that uh, was, I believe, 144 games, not 162, because the strike lingered uh, into uh, uh, the early days of spring in 1995. But they also made the playoffs, as we all know, in 2007, uh, in 2009, and in 2017 and 18. Uh, From a psychological point of view, for the players, for the manager, the coaching staff, make any difference whether you lose 100 games or not? They're 40 games out of first place. Well, now 39. Yeah. Does it make any difference at this point in the season? You were around the Rockies when they were a lot better than this. Right. And about to take off. Yeah. I think now some of the same players are part of the 100 loss season that is seemingly inevitable. They have six games to play after this afternoon. Yeah, I think it really does matter. I think it's a quantitative assessment. Obviously, it's a number. Mm -hmm. But I do think the 100 mark, the three digits versus two digits, yes. does psychologically work on you. And it gives you a sense of urgency that we better get our crap together going into the offseason and the next season because that mark sticks in the brain. You know, the brain, we have a prefrontal cortex, we have an upper cortical structure, and when we have a number in our head, and if we lose 100 games versus 99, now one might say that's one, uh, the number is one is a difference, but it's it's the qualitative experience that it gives us. When you lose 100 games, you that's a distinction. That's a distinction. Just like the Broncos the other day, the number 70 stands out <laughs> well, yes. in your head yes. versus, you know. Nice even number. Yeah, versus 69. <laughs> so the number, I think, does matter psychologically and emotionally. And, um, you know, I wouldn't, even though you got a 10-game winner on the mound, I, I wouldn't qualitatively – rule out the Rockies being able to rally and, and uh, 
keep themselves from from hitting that 100 mark in the, on the loss column. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the Dodgers have, have everything wrapped up. And I, I did notice, in fairness to the Rockies, they were playing most of their guys yeah. Yeah, in, in, in their starting lineup. Betts was there batting first, and Freeman was there batting second. I mean, they weren't, uh, uh, they weren't going after uh, anything terribly important, but their guys were in the lineup, and they were playing. And I suppose mathematically there's still a chance that the Dodgers could overtake the Braves for the best record in the National League. The Atlanta Braves are the only team at the present time in Major League Baseball to have won 100 games. They have 100 wins right on the nose. Uh, the Dodgers probably will get there, but they're 96 and 60 now. Yeah. Uh, with with six games to play. But um, just the weight of losing, just as a general idea in sports. We talked about it a little bit uh, yesterday with you. Uh, the dimensions of the Bronco loss, but also the fact that the Broncos have lost 19 out of 24 games and the Rockies even winning today are 57 and 99. And the losing didn't just start this year for either right. franchise. The weight of losing, is that something similar to what you just described when it's year after year after year? And it was you yesterday who pointed uh, quite rightly to the Garrett Bowles quote Right, that came after Sunday's shellacking, uh, where he issued a couple of expletives and said, "Tired of losing, man. I've been here seven years, and all I've done is lose." Mm-hmm. The weight of losing, yeah, it weighs heavy. There, it does psychologically. I mean, you begin to it becomes a norm, just like winning becomes a practice mm-hmm. and norm. Losing becomes a practice and norm. And you know, it's it's interesting because when we mentioned the Braves winning 100 games, right, and then the Rockies potentially losing 100 games, there's a relationship there. There's there's a few coaches that used to be with the Rockies that are now with the Braves. And so you look yeah. at how the Rockies were performing when basically we had that cohesion um, with with Walt Weiss and, and EY, Eric Young, and and now those coaches are in Atlanta. Yes, and you're absolutely right. Look what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and I think that one of the most undervalued aspects of sport performance is team cohesion. And it's even co- in baseball, even in baseball, even in baseball, which yes. tends to be viewed within a team context as an individual sport hitter versus pitcher. Yeah. No, there's so much cohesion in that clubhouse. I got to tell you, when I worked for the Colorado Rockies, that clubhouse was the most dynamic place in pro sports there was a period of time when i was the rockies nuggets and broncos psychologists all at all the same at the same time. time right and that clubhouse for the rockies was the most dynamic because why was that well because you have different factions in that clubhouse you know you have groups the pitchers are over here yeah you know some of the the, the puerto rican and cuban players right. are over here the white players over here but there's a dynamic in there in that when we walk out that door, we're all together. And I just saw so much cohesion on that team when we had people like Cargo and we had people like Nolan Arenado at that time. At that time. Because it kind of fell apart after that. 2016. But, you know, and and then Walt Weiss is is such a collaborative, cooperative person. I mean, he, he was a guy that just brought people together naturally. And then Eric Young. A, a very energetic, dynamic communicator. We just had all that cohesion going. And you look now what they're doing with the Atlanta Braves, and I just tell people it's more than talent. It's collaboration. It's cohesion in the locker room that really builds things. You know, it, it, you look at the Nuggets, too. Um, it, it, that they, evolved over time. That evolved over time. But it, I, it, I'll tell you, they didn't have that back in 16, in 17. They did not have that. And it was at often. And it was the same coach. Same and coach. Jokic was there. But it was very and divided. Murray was there. It was divided. But it at was times. divided then. Yes. So that collaboration, cooperation. And you know, it's not a sexy way to look at sports. Oh, well, we have more team collaboration and cooperation <laughs> than any other team. We love saying we love talking about talent and draft choices and and big name coaches. But I'm telling you, there is so much 
to that collaboration. And, and I'll finish by saying this on that point. When I was in Canton, Ohio, for uh, DeMarcus Ware's um, induction into the Hall of Fame, yeah. you know, there were six or seven guys from that 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 two, uh, fifth, Super Bowl 50 Super Bowl team. Yeah. Um, you know, Danny Trevathan, um, TJ Ward, those guys. And when we were talking, we were asking each other, what, what was it? What was mm-hmm. it about that team? And Brock Osweiler was there. And ironically, there was only two offensive players there, and there was about nine defense. Because, you know, again, DeMarcus Ware played defense. But Brock said. But, but the locker room was tighter on the defensive side. Yes, oh, 100%, 100%. But Brock chimed in, and he says, guys, let me say something. He says, your defense, our defense, was the closest defense I've ever seen. Now, you got to remember, Brock's been with five or six teams in the NFL throughout his career, um, albeit short times. But it was that collaboration and cooperation. And DeMarcus Ware got up and spoke about that at his party after the ceremony. So, again, let's not undervalue the the cohesion, that connectedness that we have in the locker room and clubhouse um, throughout pro sports. That was championship team. And I remember something uh, that uh, longtime hockey coach who's since, long since passed away named Fred Shiro said when the Philadelphia Flyers, who were one of six expansion teams to join the NHL in 1967, some seven years later, a little less than seven years later, they're celebrating their first Stanley Cup and they're playing the Bobby Orr, Phil Esposito, Boston Bruins in the Stanley Cup final. And they're comfortably ahead in the series, and they're about to win. And Shiro says before what would turn out to be the last game, win tonight and you'll walk together forever. Mm. I thought psychologically, Mm. wow, what a perfect thing to say. Yeah. Before a potential championship clinching game. Yeah. What a great thing to say. You'll walk together forever. Forever. And the Broncos gave me that impression in 2016, especially on the – Defensive side that all those guys will walk together forever. Yeah. Hall of Famers and for lack of a better term, non Hall of Famers. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw that in Canton, Ohio so vividly at the party afterwards, after the ceremony. And you know, those parties at night are pretty vivid. They're they're they there's no holds barred. Um because I'll give you a case in point. Danny Trevathan, Brandon Marshall, and I were gonna take a picture together. And as soon as other players saw us do that, you know, they wanted to jump in. Malik mm-hmm. Jackson jumped in. Sure. And uh, uh, TJ Ward jumped in. Chris Harris Jr. They're like, yeah. no, wait, 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 let's get everybody in here. Because that's the way it was. And then, you know, and then after we took a shot there, then they called Brock over. And then they called Brandon McManus over, you know, and he was there that night. Yeah. And uh, it, it just, we do walk away. And I, I, don't know, I was telling the players, I felt more connected to him that night in Canton, Ohio, than I did when we were with the team because, you know, there wasn't any pressure to win. There was nothing under the gun. And it was such a cool way to connect with these players. So I support that notion. You'll walk together forever. 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 Uh, Yeah. And it's true with all championship teams. It'll be true with the Nuggets uh, forever uh, following their 2023 NBA championship run. And it's true with the Avalanche from 2022. Uh, The amazing thing is they have maintained, and I want to get your reaction to this. I know you haven't spent a lot of time around the Avalanche, but you're in Denver, you follow them. Yep. Gabe Landeskog played in the Stanley Cup playoffs in 2022 with a knee so bad that he knew it would require surgery. And he knew there was a pretty good chance he wouldn't be able to play at all the following season. But opportunities to win the Stanley Cup don't come around very right. often. Landeskog had joined the team when it was terrible. Uh, he, he's a young man, but he's been with the team more than a third of his life. And as captain of the team for more than a third of his life. And he actually played quite well in the 2022 playoffs. Without Gabe Landeskog, they probably wouldn't have won the Stanley Cup, but you could say that about 10, 12 people. But he misses all of last year with the injury, and there's some hope he'll come back for the playoffs. Well, that was unrealistic. They decide that he needs more surgery. 
and he's been pronounced, at least for the regular season this year, also out. What a sacrifice to take two years out of the prime of your career in the pursuit of a Stanley Cup, in, in the pursuit of a championship, and sacrifice two years, at least two years, from your career. But the Avalanche did not name another captain. He is still the captain. He was still with the team when training camp opened, and he spoke about that. And the coach, Jared Bednar, spoke about, well, you could have named two or three captains Mm -hmm. uh, just to fill in, and he becomes captain again when he comes back. Bednar said, no, no, we, we haven't entirely given up on the idea that he could come back this year in the playoffs. He's made remarkable progress in this latest rehab period. And he's still our captain. And I thought that was a hell of a gesture too and speaks to the strong psychology that operates within the avalanche locker room too. Yeah. And symbolically he is the captain. Even though he's not out on the ice, he's not competing symbolically he is emotionally and psychologically you know one thing that people don't understand is that you can contribute to a team emotionally without ever stepping on the ice the field the pool whatever you do you can contribute emotionally and psychologically and and we see that oftentimes when people get an injury and they still help coach they help assist um you know in cheering people on but it's it's really the neck up you know the emotional side sandy is is so important you know, we're a product of brain chemistry. We have what's called the pituitary gland. Yeah. It releases, you know, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, oxytocin. We call that the love drug. When you compete and you encourage others, whether you're on the sidelines or on the field, oxytocin is released from the, from the brain. Uh, dopamine's released, and that is a positive neurotransmitter, and it spreads throughout the team, and people, you know, really take energy from that. You know, when we talk about energy uh, at home field, for example, that's real. You know, the human body has what we call biofields of energy, and there is what we call chi. Chi is an energy that runs through the body, and we can cultivate that through brain chemistry. So the reason they didn't, in my estimation, name another captain Mm -hmm. is because symbolically, he is still every bit the captain as he was when he's on the ice. I thought it was a terrific gesture on the part of uh, the avalanche, but for the reasons you just stated, uh, quite understandable and more than justified. When we come back, we're going to be talking about where the Broncos are. Uh, Losers of 70 of their last 107 games, 19 of their last 24, and uh, what to make from the perspective of uh, the foremost performance psychologist in the country, the man sitting to my left, of two teams that, even this early in the season, without question, have separated themselves as the two worst teams in the National Football League. You worked with the Chicago Bears once upon a time, and you just described how you worked with the Denver Broncos under perhaps more pleasant circumstances in 2015. What can you imagine might be going on this week in the Chicago training facility and in the Bronco training facility out at Dub Valley. We'll discuss next as we continue. This is Sandy and Sean on Mile High Sports. Stay with us. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Sandy Clough, Chandro Tar, Dr. Rick Perea sitting in for Sean, who will be returning to us on Friday. Uh, Sean, for some reason, thought that uh, getting out of town might be a good idea in advance of maybe as bad a matchup as we've seen in the National Football League in decades. 
unquestionably over the first three weeks of this season, the Bears and the Broncos have separated themselves as the two worst teams in football. Uh, according to Sean Keeler's column this morning in the Denver Post, stat guru Kenneth Massey pegs the Bears and the Broncos to win just five more games apiece. Somebody's got to win Sunday, of course. In theory, <laughs> Theoretically. they TeamRankings.com latest projections have the Broncos finishing a loss season with 4.4 victories, fewest in the league. The Bears are next at 4.9. Keeler's argument in his column today is that the Broncos should tank and keeping Vance Joseph is a sign that they're still thinking about winning. And my whole theory on tanking, and I want to hear yours as well, is that any team that has lost 70 out of its last 107 games and 19 of its last 24, if they aren't tanking, (laughs) I mean, how much worse could it be than 5-19 and even if they were not trying to win? I mean, there are a couple of baseball teams this year, one in particular that's planning to move to Las Vegas in the next few years that clearly is tanking now and trying to set the stage for the move and the revenues to come, um, even if that's three or four years off. But they've still won 48 games and lost 108. I'm wondering about this whole concept of tanking. You know it from a psychological perspective, don't you? As something that players just don't do, much less coaches with an ego the size of Sean Payton. Right. Losing on purpose. Yeah. To what end, exactly? To get the first overall pick instead of the third or the second? No, I I think what happens... They've done plenty of losing already. Yeah, no, I think what happens is it's very hard to tank a game physically. Now, can you tank emotionally and psychologically? Uh, Absolutely. And so I've seen teams that emotionally and psychologically give up. You can see it. There's not the the Broncos did that on Sunday, did they not? Yeah, there's not the energy there. They've already done that. There's not the passion there. There's not the communication. They're not, you know, dapping each other up on the sidelines, encouraging each other. So you can tank in the in the emotional and psychological realm from the neck up, but you have to protect yourself from the neck down in, in pro football. If you go out there and go 80%, you, you could very well get hurt. I mean, there's, those are big human beings going at rapid speed and very quick, explosive people. So that, that's not possible. But again, there does become a climate and a culture so in the locker room, in your practice facility, in the way you comport yourself. And I want to tell people the difference between climate and culture. A climate is right now. That's what it is right now. You walk in the locker room, what's the vibe, what's going on in there? Culture is over time. And I got to tell you, you know, teams that get on winning streaks have a positive culture, a positive climate. It's the same thing with losing. There's a negative climate and culture. And so, yeah, absolutely. Tanking does not happen from the neck down, but absolutely can happen from the neck up. And we, in performance psychology, we study how thoughts lead to feelings Feelings leads to mood, and mood leads to behavior. So their behavior is their performance on the field, and your mood affects that. Your feelings affect that, and your thinking affects that. And there is a stream, a scientific trail that says thoughts lead to feelings, feelings lead to mood, and mood leads to behavior. So it will affect a a team that gets beat by 50, for example. They're going to have to do something to rectify that from the neck up before they play on Sunday, because if they don't, that could have a, a cumulative effect on the game against the Chicago Bears. And i got to tell you, you know, at right now, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were a betting man, I would take the Bears. Because I Who think... Who are, in fact, three-point underdogs. It's unbelievable <laughs> to me that a team could give up 70 points and come back the next week on the road and be favored, but that's how bad people think the Bears are. Yeah, well, the the right now, the Broncos are pretty bad, too. 
And I think no they, kidding. I think what people are are assuming that you know there's there's probably more talent on Denver than Chicago. Yeah. So they're banking on that. And they have a better quarterback because Justin Fields ranks league wide in some of the major quarterbacking statistics. Let's see, thirty first in completion percentage, seventeenth uh, in percentage of touchdown passes thrown, and that's his best stat. Uh, he is thirty first. In interception rate, 28th in yards per pass, 31st in passer rating, 34th in quarterback rating. Yeah. Because more than 32 quarterbacks have played in NFL games over the first three weeks of the season, and he is 32nd in percentage of time sacked. Right. So I guess measured against Russell Wilson, maybe the Broncos have an edge uh, in that area. And the Bears have been internally a mess for weeks now. Uh, Their defensive coordinator took a leave of absence, and then he, I guess, walked away amid rumors that uh, there was some inappropriate behavior that he exhibited while the defensive coordinator of the Bears. Yeah, well, you know, one thing I want to say in, in defensive fields not not that I'm a Fields fan, but I'm just saying for any player, it's not just their performance on the field that we need to evaluate. We need to evaluate how their coaches are developing them. Well, how, he how, said they weren't doing it right, well, that he felt like a robot, and then the organization got to him and said, you can't say that publicly, so he took it back. <laughs> so he took it back, okay. Yeah, he but did. but here's, here's what we've talked about a lot, Sandy, is organizations have philosophies. And some of them were really high on developing players, whether they're a first-rounder, a fifth-rounder, seventh-rounder. They, they're invested in developing players. So it's not just how well the player is playing. It's the scheme they're playing in. It's the system they're playing in. It's the coaches that coach them. As you know, Sandy, I coach coaches. I coach yeah. coaches in the NFL. Right. And I got to tell you something. There are some great coaches in the NFL, and there are some flat-out, Poor. I'll I'll leave the 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 Jer- the, the Bulls word. Remember the word he yeah. used. Yeah. There's some flat out sh- coaches yeah. in the league, right? And they're not yeah. great communicators. They don't connect yeah. with their athletes. They they got in through a system, a good old boy system, and they right. just stay there year and year yeah. and year. But I got to tell you, you know, Chicago um, has suffered from many of the things the Broncos are suffering from now. Oh, they're very similar as organizations. Yeah, they had a GM there named Ryan Pace, who I who I worked with directly, right. who, oh my gosh, great communicator, great organizational guy, and he got he got chewed up by the NFL grinder, just because. But he's still there. Yeah, well, I know he's still there. I know, but he he's not he's doing it with his hands tied behind his back. He's not allowed to really exercise by ownership. By ownership. Yeah, and you know, I I think that I see so much players that get developed the right way get get um you know brought along in a system that fits their talents and we have a saying in football kyp know your personnel because when you know your personnel you're able to understand how they fit within your system we're suffering that here in denver with russell wilson i don't think we know our personnel and i don't (laughs) think we know how to identify how to match our personnel with the right scheme so i think sunday's game between chicago and denver will be Highly competitive on a non-competent level. I'll leave it like that. <laughs> I may have to write that one down. <laughs> I write down a lot of the stuff you say. I may have to write that down. It could be highly competitive game at a non-competent at level. At a non-competent or incompetent level. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. the, the great line. <laughs> um, Vance Joseph, as we discussed yesterday, is getting skewered. And I guess your defense, uh, if you're the coordinator, gives up 70 points, that, that happens. But I'm looking at the playing time that certain offensive players got the other day. And some of the players that Sean Keeler talks about is promising players that uh, in his column today, they can now trade Jerry Judy because they have Marvin Mims. Marvin Mims hasn't played more than 17 offensive snaps in any of the first three games. He played 24% of the offensive snaps on Sunday. Cortland Sutton, who fumbled the ball away twice, I would think that would be worth a benching. He played 95% of the snaps. And that's not Vance Joseph's fault. 
Javante Williams, we told, had made this almost miraculous recovery from tears to three of the four major knee ligaments. And they boasted throughout the offseason and on into training camp that he was going to be 100% ready to go on opening day. Javante Williams played 42% of the snaps the other day. And you say, well, P. Ryan, early in the season at least, is going to get most of the work. P. Ryan played less than one out of every three snaps. Well, maybe McLaughlin got more time. Well, McLaughlin did get more time. McLaughlin, next to Mims, is probably the second fastest player they have on offense, the most dynamic. 21% of the snaps in a game where they were behind from the beginning, way behind after the first quarter, even further behind at halftime, you get the idea. Yeah. That isn't on Vance Joseph. Right. That's on the head coach. Three young players. McLaughlin was not drafted, but he's a rookie. That's Sean Payton making that choice. Mims, they moved up to draft. Mims, late in the second round. That was Sean Payton's draft, not George Payton's draft, Sean Payton's draft. And Javante Williams was exhibit A as to why the new medical staff was so much better than the old one. Look, (laughs) the new medical staff has him playing within 10 and a half months of having had surgery. Yeah. Except He doesn't play. 58% of the snaps, he's not in the game the other day. I think their problems go well beyond Vance Joseph. And Sean Keeler's contention in his column today was that if 2023 were salvageable, you'd have fired Vance Joseph before he could board the bus at Miami Gardens. Mm. I, I, I don't know. He's not in charge of who plays on offense. And but, by the way, contrary to popular belief, their offense stunk the other day, too. Yeah. And, Just not, it didn't historically stink the way the defense did. Right. And and something we need to understand is the offensive coordinator is the person who calls out the personnel groupings. The personnel groupings that are decided. Well, that's Joe Lombardi, who perhaps is the most conservative offensive coordinator in the NFL and was fired for that very reason. By the Los Angeles Chargers. And here he is doing it again. So, you know, one, the first thing I, when I saw Mims playing, you know what my first thought was? Where's this kid been? Like, where's he been the first two games? Sitting on the bench? Because, you know. Sitting on the bench. You know, That's where he's been. Last I checked, this is big boy competitive football in the best players play. Now, I understand there is a dynamic when you invest in a first rounder, second rounder. But he's a second rounder. He's got to be. He's got to be competing for for time, because he he's a difference maker. You can see right away, and you saw on on Sunday he did make a difference when he was in the game. But how many plays did he play? Did you say? Well, twenty four percent. And he hasn't played more than seventeen plays in any of the first three games, and it's it, it it's been consistent right around that twenty four twenty five percent mark. Yeah. So, and I understand he's playing special teams and that'll be their rationale. Apparently they believe rookies can play on special teams, but they can't <laughs> play on offense and they can't play on defense. Well, and here's the thing. It's more work for coaches to uh, continually evaluate. So like the name of our starters week one, a lot of coaches stay with those starters, even though there's other players developing and getting better. Now, especially rookies, rookies and second year players make their biggest jump from year one to year two, year two to year three. And they, when they make those jumps, they got to be on the field. They got to play, you know. And and I just think that so many coaches are lazy. They become lazy and they don't continually evaluate talent. And they're not necessarily willing to hold people accountable and say, "Hey, you fumbled the ball twice. You dropped the ball twice. You put it on the carpet. You know, come sit with me for a little while because I got a young blood right behind you that's eager, that's thirsty, that wants to compete. And those people bring energy too. When we go back to the the energy side. Of, of tanking the the psychological and the emotional energy that somebody brings who really wants to be on the field. You know, Sandy, I'm telling you, I can watch an NFL game and I can watch players non-verbally. I can tell who wants to be out there 
and I can tell who's already counted their money and they know they're set for life and they're not, they're not going to put themselves at risk and they play with their wings trimmed. If they go over the middle, they're going to alligator arm it. They're not going to lay out for the ball because they've their agents told them this too. You're 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 set for life. Don't get hurt. You know, compete, but don't lay it out there. I can see it, identify it, and it kind of it makes me sick. I'm going to say this. You didn't say this, but I will. To me, you just described Cortland Sutton to a T. And the only reason, I know Sean Payton says, well, we don't care how much money guys make. The best guys play. Cortland Sutton is only playing because he's the highest paid player uh, other than Russell Wilson that yeah. the Broncos have on offense. Yep. That's the only reason he's playing. The only reason he's playing. It is. Who plays when he's fumbled twice on the same day and you're getting skewered. You don't even gain 200 yards for the day in total offense. I know in receiving yardage he got almost half of that, but he also fumbled the ball away twice, which added insult to injury or injury to insult, however you want to put it. And he's out there 95% of the snaps just because he makes a lot of money. McGlinchey played 97% of the snaps and would have played 100% if he hadn't gotten hurt. He's playing because he's making a lot of money. And Russell Wilson is making a lot of money. And Ben Powers, the guard they signed from Baltimore, Baltimore didn't want any part of. Oh yeah, He's making a ton of money. Yeah, That's why he's playing. Garrett Bowles, when they didn't pick up his fifth-year option, he, he chose the right year to have a great year. And they had to pay him more than they would have had to pay him the fifth-year option. That's why he's playing. Yeah. 100% of the snaps, week after week after week. Sandy Clough and Dr. Rick Perea sitting in for Sean Rotar. This is Sandy and Sean on Mile High Sports, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3. Our caller text line remains 303-831-1340. We'll talk about something that Deion Sanders had to say. This week in Boulder in the wake of Colorado's 42-6 loss to Oregon, which I thought was very interesting. And Dr. Rick Perea, thankfully, is here to interpret this in whatever manner he sees fit. And I'll have some thoughts as well as we continue on Mile High Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Deion Sanders, I believe, shares something in common with the late Howard Cosell. People who love him can't take their eyes off him. People who hate him can't take their eyes off him. And as you might expect, there is a bit of a backlash this week uh, from people who, after Colorado was smoked by Oregon on Saturday, are saying, in effect, he had it coming. And today, Keyshawn Johnson, or this week, went on Fox in the show called Unfinished. Do I have that right? At the name of the show, Undisputed, Undisputed, I'm sorry. That was the show that Keyshawn Johnson joined after Shannon Sharp left to go to ESPN and be on first take with Stephen A. Smith and others uh, every day. And uh, this is from Keyshawn Johnson, and it's from yesterday, not today. 
I spoke to somebody in the coaching fraternity right after the game, and they know some people who coach at Oregon. And they were telling me, they said, man, I've never heard from another assistant coach how much information was being given to that staff. I'm being real with you about game planning against Colorado so they could beat them. And Deion Sanders was asked this week about some of that backlash and the negative thoughts and maybe even perceptions that now have developed. They've been gradually building for weeks, even if CU has been winning, and now they're out in the open. Here's what he had to say. Your whole life, you've been divisive. People yeah. really when love I came you. out the wound, I was booed. Right, or they really don't, right? Yeah. So, and, and a lot of those don'ts have been very vocal this week. How? What's your message to them? And then, and then what do you tell your locker room I don't have a message about? to detractors or haters. I don't have a message. I don't take my time to respond and to defend myself. Why would I do that? I'm, I'm giving you a microphone if I'm doing it. I'm giving you solace that you're in my life. I don't care. I really don't. So it's, if it's been that way all my life, you would think that I'm used to it. I'm, I'm not new to this. I'm true to this, and I keep going. So I'm good with that, man. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. This is a comfortable place for me. So what do you teach your guys in the locker room who are, who are new It's about this? us. It's not about them. It's about us. Um, everywhere we go, even in your darn families, you're going to have detractors, you're going to have naysayers, you're going to have doubters, even in your darn family. And you guys are all shaking my head, shaking your heads like, yeah, yeah, my aunt, she ain't no good. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah, my sister ain't, yeah, she's ignorant. Uh, you, you know I'm telling the truth. That's because it's going to be like that. God would always allow somebody to be in your path that, that have a disdain or dislike for you. It's up to you to keep going. I don't stop. I keep going. I don't have stop in me. Not whatsoever, man. I'll just give you the floor, Dr. Perea, and you can choose to react to any of that, some of that, or all of that. Yeah, well, let me make something really clear. I I, um, I would love to support Dion in his mission to be a great football coach, college football coach, his mission and his vision, but it's so hard to follow that vision and mission when all you hear is talking about where, you know, we're coming, we're here, we're this, we're that. He makes so many dogmatic statements. And here's what I mean by dogmatic. They don't have any room for discussion. They don't have any room for debate. They don't have any room for, you know, this is, we we're, we're really feel strong about our team this year. We, we, it's, it's more along the line of communicating in a way that really, a low level brain can, can interpret. I don't, there's not a lot of content that is coming out of Dion. You know, he, he quotes some, some motivational speakers along the way. Um, and he, and he rhymes sometimes, yes. which is, which is yeah. fine. But you know, Sandy, I look at things as a performance psychologist. I look deeper. I look for a deeper meaning. So when he communicates and he says, I'm not hard to find, we're coming, we're here. Those are really simplistic and notions. you better get me right now, which yeah. he said not once but twice after the game the other day. Right, and that's fine. You can make those simplistic. Not you better get us right now. You better get me. Right, right simplistic notions. But when he pregame makes a statement that we're going to put it all together today before they played Oregon, we're going to put it together on you know all three Offense, phases. Offense, defense, um, special teams, yeah. which he said, to his credit, they had not done even in winning their first three games. Right. Not in the same game. He said our offense, defense, and special teams have not performed well in the same game yet. But but my notion is this, Sandy. When you tell a football team we are going to do this, I, I love that you have a belief system that you want to impart. You want them to believe. Those are 90% right. of those brains in, the, in that locker room are adolescent brains. The, the brain right. doesn't stop mm -hmm. developing until you're 25 years old and a young man. I get it. You want to set that tone, that intention. But at the same time, there's a lot of adults listening to your rhetoric. And I wouldn't even call it rhetoric. At times, it's propaganda. It doesn't support his original notion that he's, a, that he's an old school coach Structure, accountability, and discipline. Those three things, structure, accountability, 
accountability, and discipline never go out of style in football. It's, it's one in, in Tuscaloosa. It's one in all over the nation where people are willing to put forth. But in the way he's doing it, that's my challenge, Sandy. It's the way he communicates. It's all, you know, I have sons, right? Even if we could afford it, my son's not going to drive a Maybach in college. What's next? A helicopter? There's nothing. To, there's no wolf climbing the mountain here. There's no accountability here. You know, um, I just think this needs to slow down and focus on developing the whole player, the athlete, the student, and then also the citizen. And he may be doing that behind the scenes, but what he's giving us on the outside with bringing all these entertainers on the sidelines, who, who by the way, know zero about football, okay, who know zero about and football. And some are rather controversial figures yes. in society. Yes. These days. And, and, and so, you know, um, I've heard some people out there that are I, I feel are well-versed in their field of um, analysis, and they think that Dion will only be here as long as his sons are here and maybe a year longer. You know, we don't know. I, I really I challenge anyone out there to tell me what Dion's competency is in coaching. Name them to me. Because I can tell you, we study leadership, we study communication, we study performance, and there's certain protocols that you must reach. There's there's a four-step protocol, Sandy, for performance, and it, it goes through these stages, form, storm, norm, and perform. And when you form, that means when you acquire your team, and, you, and he's done it through the portal. Right. Normally, we would do it through recruiting, um, guys transfer. And in fairness, he sort natural. of had to do it that way. He did. But but where's the storm part? He has to storm. Does he even know that? He doesn't even know that. Then the then the norm, where you start to get in a groove, and then the perform. This is a proven performance model that I'll guarantee he doesn't even know about because he thinks he's inventing it as he goes. Because there's so many people, oversimplistic people, that are supporting him just because they're winning or they were winning and have some momentum. It's not it's a lot more than this, Sandy. You've got to build student athletes that are great citizens, not people who, you know, are driving a, a $300,000 car because they can because of the financial situation in college football today. I just believe we'll see in the full body of work in the season. Right. By the time the season's over, we'll be able to truly evaluate his performance as a coach. And then one last thing I want to say here too is you know, I don't really blame Dion. I blame Rick George. I blame the athletic director because you know, this was this was a reach. You know that I work a lot in the NFL, I work a lot in college football. There are so many ADs out there that would have never touched Dion with a 10-foot pole. Why? Because they know in a big sample size it's, this is not going to work. This is a flash in the pan, in my opinion, and I get to have my opinion, by the way. It's a flash in the pan because there's no support like a form, storm, norm, and perform model that he's operating by. And when you, when you don't hold everyone accountable to the same level and you don't understand every position on your team, you don't even know who your starting center's name is, who snaps the ball. No, to it's your, the starting center now, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, the backup, and the backup, he's the backup, right? But the starter, Manuel's got hurt. But but that's the human connection piece. He connects with about twelve players on that team, right? right. And then yeah. what about the other eighty, the other ninety? You know, does I, that change if he starts bringing in more recruits? Maybe on a percentage maybe. basis. But here's the risk. Let me be really as honest opposed with you. to the forty forty twenty, which is yeah transfers and. Graduate transfers, I suppose, and 20% recruits, yeah. which is kind of the way they built this team this yeah. year. But here, here's the risk, and I'm going to be really honest with you because I have a son at, who's a junior at Cherry Creek High School and wants to play college football. And I may preclude, preclude him from doing that at CU by saying this, but I wouldn't want to send my son there because I don't know the consistency and the stability of the program. There's too much flash right now. There's too much distraction. There's too much external. We call it extrinsic yeah. motivation. There's mm -hmm. not enough internal motivation. 
I cannot put my son in a situation that does not have that stability built up over three, four, five years. You go up to Laramie, Wyoming, you want to see stability. I'm not saying they're going to win every game, but you want to see stability. Look at that program from the top to bottom. It's interesting that you say that because even though they don't have a particularly impressive record, uh, the athletic rates every FBS team week to week, one through 133. CU is still in the top 25 for the athletic. I don't know about that one. But you know who's second in the region? Wyoming. Yeah. Ahead of Air Force. Now, again, as a matter of opinion, I don't know that that ranked them ahead of Air Force, but both programs have one thing in common. Stability. Stability. Troy Calhoun at Air Force, and you've, you've had it at Wyoming. Ball, balls, ball, ball, Craig Ball is the very essence of stability. And kids who go to Wyoming know exactly what they're getting. They know how they'll be coached. They know how they'll be trained. Yes. They know how they'll practice. And they know that there is accountability for everyone up he, and down the line. He looked, that is true. He looked us in the eye in that recruit trip we went in, in early September, whenever they played uh, Texas Tech. Right. And he Let looked at it. Tough. There was a meeting where he came in and he talked to us parents and our and our sons. And he said, I'm going to be here. This is my last job. You're going to be able to look at yeah. me and you're going to be able to communicate with me. You're not going to wonder who the next coach no. is going to be here. I'm going to be here. One hour ahead as we continue on Mile High Sports. Sandy Clough, Dr. Rick Perea sitting in for Sean Rotar. Stay with us.